Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. You guys can probably do a little better than that. Good morning. Oh, much better, yeah. So Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, and he was born into an extremely dysfunctional family. His father, Jacob, went and served who would become his grandfather, Laban, or Laban, and he served him for seven years as payment for getting to marry Rachel. Now, Rachel's beautiful, and Jacob's head over heels about her, but on the wedding night, Grandpa pulls a switcheroo and I don't know if it's because he was drunk or just it was dark but Jacob doesn't realize that Laban has actually given him not Rachel but her older sister Leah and they sleep together and now he's stuck with her Um, granddad agrees to give Rachel to him as well so he's gonna have two wives and to give her to him immediately but he has to stay another seven years and work for him which he does um Leah, know, Leah knows that Jacob doesn't love her. That's really obvious. Um, but she gives him lots of sons. But Rachel doesn't. She can't seem to bear children. And so what she does is she gives her servant Bilhah to sleep with Jacob as a surrogate mom. And she has some sons for him. And then when Leah stops having kids, not to be outdone, she gives Jacob Zilpah her servant to have some more kids with. And then finally, Rachel gets pregnant and she gives birth to Joseph. And then she gets pregnant again, but this time she gives birth to Benjamin and she dies in childbirth. There are 12 sons in all of this born to Jacob. And these are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the phenomenal things about the Bible is that it tells us about our heroes, warts and all. All kinds of bad stuff about these people. That's very different than most other ancient literature. Jacob's foolishly lets everybody know, I love Rachel, not you other women. And I love Joseph the most, not you other sons. Um, So Joseph's brothers don't like him. And, And when Joseph is 17, he tattles on some of them to his father. They hate him now. And then Jacob gives him a really special garment, like a cloak. We call it the coat of many colors. So they hate him even more. And then Joseph has this dream. And in the first dream, uh, he dreams that he and his brothers are putting together bundles of, of grain, what we call sheaves, and their sheaves are bowing down to his sheave. And he tells them. And then he has another dream, and now it's the sun and the moon and 11 stars, 11 brothers, sun, moon, father, mother, bowing down to him. Now, he's not really good on picking up on social cues, so he tells them this too. <laughs> Even his father rebukes him after that one, and the brothers hate him more and more. So then his brothers are far away looking for good pasture for the flocks and Jacob sends Joseph, even though everybody hates him, he sends Joseph out to, you know, just kind of check in with the brothers and they see him coming and they conspire to kill him. Uh, One of them talks him into putting him in a well thinking he's going to rescue him. They strip him, put him in this cistern, this well, and uh, 
caravans passing by of Ishmaelites and they sell him into slavery. While he cries and begs and pleads with them not to. That's a pretty dysfunctional family. Many of you come from dysfunctional families. I come from a pretty dysfunctional family, but nothing like this. I, you know, I always felt loved and encouraged. I did have three older sisters and they made me play dolls with them. Arriving in Egypt, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. He's the captain of the guard for the king of Egypt, for Pharaoh. And when Potiphar sees that everything Jacob touches flourishes, he just turns over the whole household to him, and everything is just humming along. But Joseph is very handsome, and Potiphar's wife wants him. And she sexually harasses him over and over offering herself to him and he just says I, I can't do that that would be a sin against God and against Potiphar who's entrusted everything to me she just keeps after him and one day she grabs a hold of his clothing and he just to get away he just runs and leaves the clothing behind and you know the saying hell hath no fury like that of a and she's now going to get him and so she uses that as evidence lies to Potiphar says she called out and he ran away and just that he was trying to force himself on her, and um, Potiphar believes her, has Joseph thrown into prison. So the guy in charge of the prison puts Joseph in charge of everything there because everything he does prospers and flourishes. And he's in there for a while, and the cupbearer, that's the person that tests to make sure it's not poisoned, of Pharaoh, and the baker somehow get crosswise with Pharaoh, and they're thrown into prison, and they both have a dream the same night. And so they want Joseph to interpret. And Joseph says, you know, he, apparently he seems very wise. because, But he says, you know, only God can interpret dreams. But they tell him and he says, I'll tell you what it means. And so, uh, I mean, the cupbearer tells him. And he says, well, I had this dream and there was this uh, grapevine. It had three branches coming out of it and clusters of grapes. And I took a cluster of grape and I squeezed it into Pharaoh's cup and then I gave it to Pharaoh. And Joseph said, oh, well, the three branches are three days. In three days, you're going to be re- reinstated. And you'll be the cupbearer again. Now the baker said, oh, that turned out pretty well. I'll tell you my dream. And he said, I had three baskets on my head with pastries in them and a bunch of birds were eating the top one. And Joseph said, yeah, in three days they're going to execute you and the birds are going to eat you. And that's exactly what happened in both cases. And he said to the cupbearer, when this happens, remember me because I didn't do anything wrong and I'm stuck here in prison. But the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Now at this point, Joseph is probably 20, 21 years old, and the cupbearer forgets about Joseph until Joseph is 30. And then one night, Pharaoh has a couple of disturbing dreams. In the first one, seven plump cows come up out of the River Nile, and they're grazing, and then seven scrawny, ugly cows come up, and they eat the first seven. And then he has another one where there's seven ears of grain on a stalk, plump and juicy, and then there's another stock that comes over with seven scrawny, blight-ridden ones, and they eat the first seven. And none of Pharaoh's wise men can tell him what it means. And so then the cupbearer goes, oh, I forgot to tell you. There's this guy in prison. He interprets dreams. And they bring Joseph. And he says, well, Pharaoh, you're, you're, he's, again, he says, only God can interpret dreams. And then he goes ahead and interprets it. Um, he says, your dreams are one and the same. You're going to have seven years of Amazing harvest followed by seven years of harvesting basically nothing. 
So I recommend that you stockpile a whole bunch so that you can get through this famine that's coming. And Pharaoh says, who better than to do it than you? And turns everything, the entire kingdom, over to Joseph, who then for seven years stockpiles the grain, just tons and tons of grain. And Joseph marries, and he's in charge. And then he has two boys, and he says the following. We'll put it on screen. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, before I continue with Joseph's story, what is he doing here to keep himself from from getting bitter? Is there a principle here in what he's doing? Now, we're starting a series today about having confidence in the middle of adversity. And people generally respond in one of two ways to adversity. They either get better or they get bitter. They either become alienated from God because they're angry with him or they get closer to God. The pressure either separates them from God or it presses them closer to God. And I bet you've all seen that response in people, haven't you? Different. Don't, don't throw any elbows right now. Um, in this series, we're going to look at a number of biblical principles so that hopefully you can learn to put them into practice so that if you're in adversity now or when you hit adversity, um, it, you'll become better and you'll stay closer to God. But what is Joseph doing here in these statements? He's counting his blessings. Which blessings in particular? Children. Now, people are created in the image of God. People are more valuable than just about everything else in the universe. And whether you're rich or poor, many, many people have the treasure of children entrusted to them. And that, you know, we live in a very fallen world and there are many couples who would love to have children and because it's a broken, fallen world, that doesn't happen and that can be extremely disappointing and hard. Joseph is at a much older age in his mid-30s by now than most young men would have had children at. And, you know, children, when they come, they just kind of flood your heart with love. They're a lot of work, but they still just fill us with love. And Joseph, he may be counting his other blessings as well. He's probably the second most powerful man in the world. He lives in a nice house, has servants. He's probably nicer to them because he was once one. Um, Great food. But what he calls attention to is his, his children. Three weeks ago, we did a, a message about a word in Greek, only, the root only appears once in the New Testament, storge, family love. It's, it's one of the most powerful kinds of love that we experience is just kids come out of the womb and we just love them and we, we get attached to our parents and our siblings. Our greatest joys... And our deepest wounds generally come from family love. Where had Joseph's deepest wounds come from? His brothers sold him into slavery. Can you imagine that? How would you feel? And where were his greatest joys now coming from? Having children. Janice, a couple weeks ago, spent a week with our, our grandkids. And I mean, you know, so she walks in the door and they go, Grandma! And hug her, you know, and it's like, that just fills her with this, um, you know, it's one of her favorite experiences of her entire life. Um, I can't compete with that. We use uh, Find My Friends on our phone, so I saw when she was driving back home from down south, and I saw as she was getting close, and I ran out in the driveway before she pulled in, so when she pulled in, I was there. 
I still can't compete. <laughs> After years of slavery and imprisonment, Joseph's experience of his children is creating a deep sense of gratitude that's helping him to put his hardships into perspective. Do you do that? Whether you're in a difficult time right now or in the past, do you tend to count your blessings or do you count your afflictions? One of my hopes for this series is that you'll develop a habit of counting your blessings, especially when you're in the middle of a storm. Okay, returning to Joseph's story. Now, periodically in the ancient world, there were famines, and some of them were really awful, and tens of thousands of people died, and it was an awful way to die. But Joseph has collected these huge stockpiles of grain, and the way he works it is the first couple of years, all the Egyptians pay him so they can have food. But he knows it's going on for seven years. And then they run out of money. So they give Pharaoh, through Joseph, all their livestock. And then their livestock's gone. So they give all their land. By the end of the seven years, Pharaoh owns everything. And the famine's regional, so people from surrounding countries are coming to buy food. And that's when we see again Joseph's ten brothers. Not his youngest, Benjamin. Not his full brother, Benjamin, but his half-brothers. The ten of them. The ones that sold him into slavery. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And he speaks through interpreter, so they don't know that he understands them when they're talking. And he treats them gruffly and says they're spies and milks them for information, finds out that they have a brother, Benjamin, which he already knows, and says, you're spies, you bring Benjamin back, or I won't believe that you're not spies. And he keeps Simeon as a hostage. And they go back, but before they go, when he's being so mean to him, they're talking in their native tongue, which they don't know he understands about, see, this is God getting back at us for selling Joseph into slavery. And he has to go out of the room because his heart is broken and he's weeping. This is not a hard-hearted guy. He's weeping. But when they go back, Jacob, their father, says, there's no way you're taking Benjamin. I'm not taking any chance of losing Benjamin. It'll kill me if I lose Benjamin. I already lost Joseph. But eventually they're all starving anyway. So he says, okay, you can take him. And they promise to bring him back. And when they return to Egypt, Joseph is now about 39 or 40 years old. This is about 20 years after they sold him into slavery, a little more than that. Joseph puts on a feast, he sends them out, and not only does he return their money, which he had done the previous time too, in their sacks of grain, but he has his own silver cup hidden in the grain bag of Benjamin. And so they let them get away, and then he sends his men after them, and they make a big ruckus about it, and the brothers say, oh, none of us would ever steal that. If you find that on any of us, that person will die, and sure enough, they find it on Benjamin. So they all go back to Joseph, And he's toying with them. He's tormenting them a little bit, making them feel powerless. And that they are now at risk of losing everything, just like they took everything away from Joseph when they sold him into slavery. And they beg and they plead with him. Judah actually offers to stay in Benjamin's place. And they say, if if you do this, our father will die. It will kill him. And Joseph breaks down. And in their own language, tells them who he is. He sends all the Egyptians out. Guess how they feel? At first, they are very disturbed. They're going, arguably the second most powerful man in the world who we sold into slavery 
has just told us that he knows who we are. But he tells him, don't be distressed. We'll put this on screen. God sent me before you to preserve you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God. And he weeps and kisses them. Could you do that? Could you do that 20 years later after spending more than 10 in slavery and prison? He sends them back to their father Jacob with wagon loads of gifts and silver and food and they bring the whole family to Egypt where they thrive. But 17 years later, his father Jacob dies and once again the 10 brothers are afraid, the 10 half-brothers, that now Joseph will take his revenge. But Joseph speaks with kindness to them and comforts them and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph dies about 50 years later at the age of 110. Now look at that statement for a minute. What is Joseph doing in this statement? Is he saying that, oh no, you guys are good brothers? No. They not only did evil, they intended to do evil. So how can he forgive him? Because he has a big enough perspective to see that God's doing something more. God meant it for good. Now, if you have not already, I highly recommend that at least for this series and for all of your life, but that for this series you memorize, if no other verse, you memorize Romans 8.28. We'll put it on screen. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. When his brothers, half-brothers stripped him and threw him into a cistern, do you think that Joseph was feeling, oh yeah, God's going to turn this into good? As he wept and pleaded and they sold him into slavery, do you think he was thinking, yeah, God will turn this into good? When he was imprisoned unjustly for probably upwards of 10 years, you know, I I don't think that in the midst of it, he was, he was feeling that way. But looking back, it became clear to him what God was doing. And quite honestly, it won't always be clear to you in the midst of it. It's certainly not always clear to me. Um, usually, some of the difficult things that we go through, we look back, and after some time, some of them at least, we can say, that's how God turned it into good. And remember, God's not calling evil good. God weeps when we do evil to people. God weeps when people die of cancer. He does not call evil good. He's just so powerful that he can turn the tables on evil and bring good out of something that evil intended for evil. Very painful situations. So when we're in the midst of it, it's important that we remind ourselves of times in the past when God did that. I have ones that I can look at and go, oh, that was a really good, and then I have others I still don't understand. So I've, I've experienced some painful situations um, when I don't understand, remembering the ones that I do understand helps me a lot. One of the most famous quotes from C.S. Lewis is, 
God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, a lot of you already know that you're aware that I, w- I was an atheist. I was deaf to God. I was uh, arrogantly rejecting him. And then suddenly when I was 15, my father committed suicide. Blew me out of the water. I made me think a lot. I started looking for answers and seeking God. About a year later, people praying for me, lots of discussion, study, the Holy Spirit breaking through. I became convinced. I couldn't get away from it that Jesus was God in the flesh. He died for me. He's, he'd risen again and I ought to give my life to him. And so I did. Uh, it took something awful to kind of get my attention. What's been your most difficult thing that's happened to you? Is it, are you in something right now that's really tough? Is it something in the past? You, can you see now how God turned the tables on evil and used it for good? Are you willing to trust him even if you can't? Would you open a Bible to the first chapter of James? We're going to just look at three verses there. Uh, my plan for this series is each week to have us look at a biblical narrative about somebody important in the Bible and how they went through adversity and see some principles there. This week we're looking at Joseph. But then also to highlight some important passage in the Bible that is kind of famous for dealing with adversity. This one is one of the most famous. James 1, 2 through 4 is well worth memorizing. Um, and if memorizing doesn't work for you, you can, you can put it on your phone I have, my calendar makes um, three times a day, my phone has a little uh, alarm and it makes me remember what I'm working on with God to try and change. Um, you can do that with memorization stuff. You can also just print out some copies and put them in strategic places like your, your car dash or um, under your pillow. I do highly recommend that as you're going to sleep, you recite this or the Romans 8.28 passage to yourself and it may really help get rid of some of the anxiety in your life. Let me read it to you. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now the idea behind the Greek word that was translated here as count, count it all joy, it's really associated with uh, bookkeeping. In the ancient world, you'd have a ledger, and you'd have one side where you put down the positives, like I sold uh, 10 gallons of olive oil for five denarii, and I sold uh, two bu- 10 bushels of wheat for 10 denarii. And then you'd have the negative on the other column, which would be things like uh, paid five day laborers five denarii, and bought seed for next harvest year for another five denarii. Um, denarii. Uh, what James is saying is that where you record your trials is important. Do you put them down on the negative side of the ledger or on the positive side of the ledger? Where do you think most people put them? Negative side. This is awful. I don't like this. This is is painful. Put on the negative side. We need to learn to put them on the positive side because God will use them to enrich us, not to impoverish us. Now, often while we're in the middle of it, we don't understand, so we learn to put 
things on the positive side of the ledger by faith because of God's promises, because we've seen him in the past come through and turn the tables on evil. Now the other word um, in here is testing, uh, the testing of your faith. And it's a word that comes out of metallurgy and coins. They would test them to see how pure they were. In Proverbs, something similar, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So the the metaphor here is that um, silver and gold were purified by heating them up to become liquid, and then impurities would generally float to the surface, called slag, and you get rid of them. If you do this various times, the metal becomes more and more pure. This is one of the ways that God uses adversity, because the flames of adversity show us the impurities in our hearts. You ever see? I sure see that in mine. Start getting upset or impatient or pouting, the the impurities come to the surface in the flames of adversity. But God wants us to cooperate with him to get rid of the impurities. Now, why would you want to get rid of the impurities in your heart, in your soul? Why would you want to become more patient or more gracious or more loving? Well, several reasons. If you're attracted to Jesus, you want to become like him. That's just what it means if you love him. Also, If you love people, you want to become more loving toward them. Also, if you learn these things, then when adversity hits, and it will if you're not in it right now, it gets less power over you. It won't destroy your hope or rob you of all your joy. It'll still be painful. It'll still be tough, but you'll get more power over it. So part of what we want to do today as we kick off this series is just to begin to change the way we look at Adversity. Do you all know what a helicopter parent is? So a helicopter parent's a parent, and kind of started with my generation. You know, they're, they're, they're watching to see if their kid's okay. And if the kid gets a bad grade or something, they, they, they swoop in and, and try and persuade the teacher not to do that. Or, um, you know, the coach isn't playing them enough. They swoop in and try and get the coach to give them more playing time on the, on the field. And... Um, They want their child to grow up with never failing at anything. But if a child grows up never failing at anything, never experiencing injustice, never getting hurt where they break a bone or sprain an ankle, if a child has no adversity, how will the child most likely turn out? Spoiled? Less than optimum character? Your heavenly father is not a helicopter parent. It may sometimes seem like what he's got you going through is just too painful and why doesn't he rescue you? But he will give you all the power that you need to go through it, to be somewhat purified by the experience. And if you will go through it with him and not let the pressure separate you from him but press you to him, you'll become more like Jesus. During the second half of the 1800s, for 51 years, Hudson Taylor was a missionary in China. And his organization, which he founded, did it different than all the other missionaries. Before that, the European missionaries, they'd stay on the coastal trading cities in China. They'd dress like Europeans. He did something completely different. Dressed like the Chinese dressed, spoke fluently a couple of different uh, dialects of Chinese, went inland and had his missionaries go inland. He recruited a bunch more. They lived on faith. They would often have nothing, and then they'd go to the post office, and they'd get a money order in the mail that was mailed months earlier from England, 
just when they needed it. Eight of Hudson Taylor's 13 children died. His wife, Maria, his first wife, died of cholera. Twice he was nearly killed at sea by typhoons. Another time he fell on a riverboat and was almost completely paralyzed and eventually recovered. During the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, he had this great big mission organization. The Chinese killed 58 of his missionaries and 21 of their children. Hudson Taylor was constantly experiencing challenges with money running low or being gone completely with persecution from the Chinese, with missionaries who just didn't work out well and all these debilitating health issues. And with all these challenges in China, Hudson Taylor barely had time to breathe throughout the day. So he developed the habit of waking up in the middle of the night, praying for about an hour and then going back to sleep. And when someone asked him if all the pressures and difficulties bothered him, He said something like this. He said, as long as I don't let the pressures come between me and God, they don't separate me from him. They just press me closer to him. Now later, the communists would expel the Western missionaries from China. They'd severely persecute the Christians, put them in concentration camps, but their roots just got deeper. And when they were released, an amazing revival took place. And today, there are experts would say well over 40 million Christians in China. And that's the legacy, in many ways, a large part of it, of Hudson Taylor. As a young man, Joseph was foolish enough to tattle on his brothers and tell them about his dreams, but adversity made Joseph wise, and he stockpiled grain, and tens of thousands of people did not starve. And God used Joseph to save his own chosen people through which our Savior would come. That's part of the legacy of Joseph. But he also learned to forgive his brothers and to experience joy again. What about you? Are you currently in a really difficult situation? It's anecdotal. I don't have any research on this, but I'm just the thing among pastors, they say at any given moment, a third of the people in the audience are experiencing some really big, horrible issue that either with their spouse or their kids or their grandkids or their job, How are you doing? Are you currently in a pronounced time of adversity? Or maybe it's a great time, which is wonderful. But you need to prepare for when it won't be. So I would encourage you to begin this week by memorizing Romans 8.28 or James 1, 2 through 4. Every night when you lie down, go over it in your head with the Lord. And remember the times in your life in the past when God has turned the tables on evil, when you, especially when you maybe didn't see it coming and he surprised you. And it's fine if you're in the middle of it to just tell him that it hurts and tell him that you don't understand and tell him that you don't understand how in the world good could come out of it. That he, that's fine. But also tell him that you trust him and ask him to give you peace and use it to make you more like Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, fill us with your spirit. Fill us in such a way that we have all the power we need, whether we're in the middle of something really difficult or we have some breathing space right now. Help us to learn to put the difficult things on the positive side of the ledger, knowing that you are so powerful you will bring good out of them because you've promised that.
Help us to remember when you've done that. Change us. Make us more like Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. Put it on the positive side of the ledger. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. May God fill you with all the power you need to face whatever it is going on in your life, any adversity or whether it's just to prepare for the next time. Be filled with his power. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.